Hey there, this is Jenny Chen. I'm the founder of 3D Heels. Welcome to the latest podcast, the official podcast for 3D Heels. This is where you will find fun but in depth conversations with technological game changers, creative minds, entrepreneurs, rule breakers, and more. Focusing on how we can use 3D technologies like 3D printing and bioprinting to reinvent healthcare and even life sciences. This podcast will also include AMA or Ask Me Anything sessions, past Instagram live interviews with influencers, and other direct engagements with our tribe. Hey, Jenny. Hey there, Robert. Can you hear me? Everybody, I think people are trying to uh, join us. Uh, give them a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And, How's uh, the background noise? I've got printers whirring behind me. Actually, I think your headphone is perfect. It really cancels out a lot of those external noise, so it's good. Cool. But anyways, let's get started. Uh, so everybody, welcome. And uh, remember to comment below. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask, and we'll try to incorporate them in our conversation. So our guest today is uh, Robert. Oh my God! I had to, oh, okay. I actually Go learned how to. No, no, I, I actually learned. I googled how to pronounce last name. It's Italian. Um, let me try this. It's uh, uh, Pugliese. Close. Good. It's pretty good. It's good. Robert Pugliese. There's actually no. There's no right way to say my name in English, because it's an Italian state called Puglia. So okay. my name is Pugliese. But I tell everybody Puglisi. <laughs> okay. So Puglisi. You, the way you pronounce Puglisi, it, is, it's so good. beautiful. Actually, the way you oh. pronounce it, it sounds like Italian. Um, yeah, so everybody, I say Roberto Pugliese to say it right. But. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> hi, hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. So our guest today, Robert, is the Director of Innovation Design at Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health, where he co-founded um, Health Design Lab, which is also the, the handle for the Instagram account. And uh, it is a creative space built with a purpose of merging together design studio ethos with science-oriented discipline to foster innovation in healthcare. And I really like, I love that description, by the way. I think that's, that's really ideal for a lot of people in healthcare 3D printing. Mm-hmm, um, totally. so, so Robert, so in... I guess now this design lab is your full-time job, but in your background, you know, you didn't really grow up to wanting to do a design to, in healthcare. So tell us a little bit of your early journey of how you got to where you are. Yeah, totally. So I'm actually trained as a clinical pharmacist. So before getting into kind of full-time health innovation, Um, I grew up in the emergency department, so I graduated pharmacy school and immediately uh, was recruited to go work in emergency department at a children's hospital here in Philadelphia and spent 10 years of my career uh, kind of in the world of academic emergency medicine, very traditional kind of healthcare path, doing clinical research and, uh, you know, focusing on emergency medicine pharmacology. And while it seems kind of random, I think that I ended up like taking this journey into innovation and that's kind of where I discovered 3D printing and began my work in 3D printing. I think people who know me a really long time know that I've always been uh, a tinkerer and somebody who likes to fix things. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are broken in healthcare. And, um, 
you know, when you're doing traditional healthcare work, you know, whether you're a physician, nurse, pharmacist, or anybody for that matter, or a patient, uh, there are a lot of kind of frustrating things on your day-to-day experiences, right, working in healthcare. So I think I began to, you know, be more and more drawn to innovation because I saw it as an outlet for a lot of my frustrations as to, to try to fix what's broken in healthcare. And uh oh. Okay, Robert, we lost you a couple. Uh oh, this is not good. <laughs> Sorry, guys, this happens sometimes with Instagram connections. It's just, uh, am I back? I'm back. Yeah. You're back. Oh my God. Okay. Tablet is uh, repeat. You may have timing out. Oh, (laughs) okay. Which is like super obnoxious, (laughs) but it's cool. We will edit that out. Um, so maybe you should just, um, start where we got left off with. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, so I was talking about, you know, kind of my frustrations, right. With healthcare, how it led me to innovation. I kind of ended up, I was lucky enough to be in a place where I found other people who were like-minded to me and who had the same frustrations. And an emergency medicine is, I think, like really is a breeding ground for innovation because we are exposed to kind of so many of the woes of society meets the woes of the healthcare system. Um, And it's, you know, we're uniquely kind of positioned here. I've got a power cord now. I'm going to plug in so I don't get, so I don't lose you guys again. By the way, guys, if you have any questions, feel free to type in the comment area. We're happy to address it during our conversation. Yes. Give me one second while I rig up also, something here. Uh, technology failure is the uh, the common scenario in our yeah, you know, life. Part of innovation is addressing the failures experience. in technology. <laughs> so, so now that I'm nice and in crooked. So yeah, so like those, you know, those frustrations let me to find other people who were had like, like-minded kind of frustrations. And we were able to create something really unique. And that was, became the health design lab. It started as an educational program for medical students uh, at our organization, and then grew to become something that kind of encompassed a lot of different realms in including, Hey, I think I got it. Um, a lot of different realms, including, you know, it started with medical education, but then it expanded into kind of this, this space where we were in this, uh, in this world between, in the space between the world of health and design. And we realized that it wasn't just students who needed to learn this, but I think everybody in healthcare. And that's where we got started. And yeah, I could talk more about kind of how, where 3D printing came from and all this, but it, it starts making more sense as you go on. Well, um, you know, one question I always ask uh, to a lot of uh, guests is also I realize that a lot of people started to be interested in design and tinkering and all these like different ladder uh, trajectory, career trajectories at a very young age. Like we have people who are interested in, you know, computer science or design or even 3D printing in as a teenager. Like what was your early life experience that you think that kind of draw you to this field? So 
what's funny when I was a real when I was really young, I wanted to become an inventor. I think I have this like weird booklet of sketches of different vehicles and buildings and like weird like public infrastructure things that I would create. I really wanted to, you know, and, and I was always tinkering building things that I really wanted to create, but I was discouraged when I realized that, you know, kind of engineering is a really kind of math intensive field and my brain just doesn't work too well when it's math. It was not my strong suit. So, you know, over time I kind of turned that into a bio, biology focus, you know, biology came a lot more natural, natural to me and the pharmacy was despite being incredibly complex, it was a lot easier than any kind of mathematics to me. So I put that aside, became a, a you know, a, a tinkerer, a fixer of humans. Um, and then, but it was always there. Like I always found myself, like I always had some weird tinker lab in my basement and I am so lucky. I consider myself lucky every day that I was able to kind of like, now I do that as my job, right? So now my job is I take all this experience, you know, I have working in healthcare and I'm able to bring what I think has always been a part of me, that kind of incessant curiosity for learning and problem solving and apply that in a really broad sense to the point now where, you know, 3D printing is a, one of the core things that we do here in the lab. But, uh, you know, our work now expands to public health work. Uh, we're running community uh, vaccination, so COVID vaccination and testing sites with the city of Philadelphia. Um, our educational mission continues on. Um, and, you know, we even do kind of, uh, we run some medical device development programs here at Jefferson as well with students and, and professionals. So um, it's amazing, you know, that I've been able to kind of touch all these different areas and, and the thing that kind of, again, brings it all together. That's why we call it the Health Design Lab is that is design, right? When I, I discovered design kind of by accident, it's not something that I had the language to understand as a healthcare, um, you know, a healthcare provider. Uh, I knew what design was because we all experience it. And I think we all have our own definition of what design is. I didn't fully appreciate the impact and the power and the ubiquitousness of design in both our personal and professional lives until I began to learn the language of design and what it is. And then I, it kind of hit me, you know, not suddenly, but quickly over time is that a lot of these problems were the result of extremely poor design, right? Whether you're talking about the experience of patients and providers in the system, the devices and spaces that we exist in and use, all of those things were designed by somebody. And in healthcare, unfortunately, the bar is really low as far as the usability, uh, the, you know, how nice it is to use something, the, the pleasurability, the, you know, the pleasurability of design and, and, and the functionality of it. So, um, you know, we, we really do approach design and health, not just as like that traditional, it's got to work, but no, we want it to be a delightful and beautiful experience as well. Yeah, no, I have so many questions to ask you. Um, but you, you mentioned that you were a pharmacist before and, and I, and a large audience, a portion of our audience also are transitioning from hobbyists to maybe even more professional healthcare 3D printing designers. Like how did you get started from as a pharmacist by training to now uh, doing 3D printing extensively? I, so I was actually a big like 3D printing doubter in the beginning. Um, you know, it's funny because again, I think it comes from my, you know, my first exposure to, you know, this 
innovation in healthcare didn't come on the tech side. It was like, in the, it was really did come through. I did learn through human centered design, right? So I didn't start with like, I love technology and let me find places to use it. It really was like, I love finding human problems and let me find tools to solve them. So, you know, when I first got in, start, we, I think our first 3D print work started about six-ish years ago. And I saw, I looked at a 3D printer. I'm like, I don't understand what this is going to do for me, right? And it was, but we knew that there was value in it, right? So we started researching it, looking to see where in healthcare was being used and not so much taking this technology and trying to find places to use it, but looking for, you know, who in our in our kind of uh, organization and in our in our space could benefit and might be interested in this. And we kind of just, and a lot of what we do is that connecting the dots. So we did get a 3D printer. We learned how to use it. We started showing different folks in the organization it. And then quickly you start seeing the other innovators coming out of the woodworks, right? So the folks who are like that surgeon who was like, I've heard about this. I've heard my colleagues are doing this and publishing on this. Can we do this here? And when I have an end user, right, come to me really excited about something, especially, you know, uh, you know, a, a surgeon, I get excited too. I'm like, wait, wait, you think there's something valuable here? Then we, we need to explore this, right? Because if it's an expert in their field sees value in something um, and we have the ability to potentially help them, you know, reach that, then let's check it out. So we kind of using our, our human centered methodology, that's how we started it. It really was kind of that initial proof of concept. Let's see if we could print human anatomy, you know, and going through the motions of how, how what, are, how do you make that, how is it technologically feasible and how do you get through it? And six years ago, it's, it's crazy how fast, right? 3D printing technology has evolved in such a short period of time. Like six years ago, it was a totally different environment. Oh, and it yeah, was definitely, definitely a lot. It was definitely like a lot more challenging, a lot more tinkering than now when stuff just works so well and it's so simple. Well, simpler and better. Simpler. <laughs> so, um, a lot of uh, times when I talk to people who now are working with three D printing, you know, sometimes they get a printer without requesting them. It sounds like that's your story, and there are other times they were trying to get one. Um, now, question is, a lot of organizations don't even know what 3D printing is still. I mean, how did you get your first printer? And what was it? Do you remember? I do. Our, our first printer we purchased um, was a Ultramaker 2Go. It was like this little tiny, you know, FDM QB printer that you could put in a backpack and take it around because I really wanted to like be able to take this thing around to different we were teaching classes at that time. You know, we wanted to be able to bring it to classes. We were uh, visiting different clinics and different, you know, meeting spaces in the organization. So we wanted to be able to bring it with us. So that was my first kind of tinkering printer. And I learned how to 3D print at a local maker space. I just like signed up for classes and, you know, they taught me how to print on some like pretty rudimentary open source printers. I still remember like, I laugh sometimes still because I remember I wanted to like print a whole bunch of one thing. And this makerspace had, you know, like five or six 3D printers that I could operate at one time. So yes. what I did was I brought like one spool of material because I, I just did the math and I was like, yeah, each thing will be this much material. Let me just bring, I, all I need is one spool. I showed up with one spool of material trying to run six printers and they looked at me like I was insane. They actually let me try it. It was not successful. Oh, <laughs> well, you were doing math, hey, you're not really doing I was my pharmacist brain, right, taking over. I'm like, all right, I need 
650 grams. I just need one spool, whatever. So I was sitting there like unspooling material. So a lot of trial and error, but that's how I learned. You know, I really just learned by just trying things. And um, I quickly learned that the challenge is not the 3D printing, right? The challenge is the design, yeah. you know, the kind of that that continues to be, I think, the tr- you know, a true thread through all of our work is that um, you can master the technology pretty quickly, but solving an actual need requires kind of constant iteration, prototyping and effort and collaboration. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the guys mentioned that 3D printing, that machine, the hardware part is just like a shovel, right? Like, and mm-hmm. uh, the question is, how are you going to dig that hole and where and all the strategies surrounding digging a hole in the ground? Um, obviously, that's a very rudimentary comparison. Uh, but I know that you brought us some very cool clinical cases. Uh, and this, since this is Instagram Live, like, I want. I wonder if you can show us some of those cases. Totally. So I've got like my my show and tell like table all set up. I don't want to like. Let's see if I'll be able to get this. Well, first I'll show you around my lab. So this is the health design lab. It's uh, we've got um, four Ultimaker S fives and then four uh, Form Labs threes and three Bs. Yeah. Um, those are kind of our workhorses. So we started with open not open source, but, you know, we started with prosumer grade devices and we've continued to, you know, utilize prosumer grade devices because, you know, one of the things that we've always wanted to approach um, this work from is a concept of sustainability. So mm-hmm. actually, let me just flip you around. It's even easier. What's a prosumer? That's a new term that you're coining. Um, oh, no, totally. I did not make that up. I will not take credit for that. So prosumer is like if you think about a consumer grade device right like a standard inkjet printer right a consumer grade device generally you you open up the box you read the instructions and it works mm-hmm. um a prosumer grade device is almost there you like how i 3d printed that too no, just kidding. um a prosumer grade device right is still accessible to your average computer, right? To your average individual. You don't need to be, let's say, an engineer or, um, you know, have professional level training to be able to utilize it. But it's not like your, your average person would need to work a little bit harder and do a little bit of that tinkering factor uh, in order for you to have 3D printing success. So we call them prosumer grade devices, right? Because these are not industrial grade machines per se but they do offer a high level of precision and control. And now, you know, even with the, the advances recently, even FDA approved workflows, which is, which is yeah. a nice valuable have when you're doing work in, in, in healthcare. But we, we it, took that route really because um, again, we're always thinking about sustainability. You know, mm-hmm. can we sustain, how do you sustain a practice like this in healthcare, which is, you know, very much focused on, outcomes and the payer system is very complex and being able to utilize technology that's really quite affordable i think is an important was always an important strategy for us so you guys let's talk about uh, you guys don't have a large uh large uh polyjet or something Mm -mm. heavier yeah that that's incredible i mean it's a very low cost i mean yes they're they are i mean these machines are not like super cheap but they're really affordable as an organization and uh, also very easy to operate. You don't really need complex management, you know, like metal printer would have to require. 
Um, right, and, so, it, and it kind of brings you to how we got started, right? We didn't get started with a large budget. We got started with a group of people who were just interested in it. And, and that group that's continued to kind of sustain our work has been medical students. So because we run a lot of our, most of our faculty are in uh, the Met based out of the medical school, we run medical school programs. There's a lot of interest, especially from medical students who are interested in becoming radiologists to do this work. And there's a lot of opportunity for research as well. So we're able to, you know, kind of very easily train, um, you know, medical students to be able to not just do the segmentation, you know, in, in partnership with, with radiology, but also to run the equipment um, again, in, in, in that training is, is very minimal to do it well. Yeah, I mean, the overall design concept, actually, you can't really ignore the fact that at the end of the day, you still have to get it through a printer and materials. All these other things also matter, you know, in terms of design consideration. So I saw quite a few examples on your table when you were scanning through and mm -hmm. all of them look weird. I don't know what they are. Can you just show us maybe yeah. show us what these are used for? So I was showing you on, on one of the printers right now we have running, um, I'm reprinting a, a brain model that we recently did. Uh, that yeah. was for a case, if you want to look it up, it was, it's called the Cortico trial here at Jefferson. Yeah, I'll the link. Um, yeah. It, yep, I sent you the link. It had a good amount of, uh, you know, stuff in the news about it. It was pretty cool. Um, our neurosurgeons led by Dr. Rosenwasser here at Jefferson, um, in, implanted a brain machine interface on one of our patients who was recovering from a stroke. And, uh, you know, they, what they did was they, they implanted electrodes in that individual's brain in order to control a mechanized arm that he would control using that interface. And because, you know, again, like people know about us and they know we're here, this is obviously not something that we're doing on a regular basis, uh, as it's a very, you know, new procedure for our organization. Um, one of the neurosurgeons who was familiar with our work, you know, reached out, we were able to 3D print a model of that particular patient's brain, you know, using an MRI scan. And they were able to use that model to plan and practice where they were going to place their electrodes. Um, and it, I sent you that link, which has a really cool picture of like the little like mini tape practice electrodes that they put on the cortical surface of the brain, which, and we have a lot of use cases like that, where really it's not it's not technically advanced, right? It didn't require, you know, a super advanced workflow, multi-materials, really advanced technologies, right? Creating, an M creating a model of the brain using uh, segmentation software is relatively straightforward if you know the workflow. Um, and 3D printing a brain that is literally all you care about is the cortical surface is also really straightforward. The cool thing, like the innovation there is just that connection, right? The mm -hmm. fact that you know, these docs uh, just needed to practice where they were physically placing these very small and very precise things. And having a 3D print was the perfect tool. Yeah. So I that was really cool. That, that, yeah, it may, it may look low tech to some people, but it actually is, I would consider high tech because, you know, in the past, if you want to have a model that looks like a brain, it costs thousands of dollars using injection mode process but yep. now you can do it in your office for you know a max a hundred dollars right materials and times and stuff like that in considered or something like that um so yeah no i think actually it is beneficial um and the other question i have is um i think you mentioned that the doctors want to practice how much more value do you think this the 3d printed model add 
to like 3D reconstructed images on a monitor, for example. Mm -hmm. Like virtual. I think that's a, that's a great point of discussion, and that's, I think you know that's why I, I still always lean on uh, you know the design process because it the 3D model may not the physical 3D model may not always be necessary. And I think that's part of the design process that we go through, right? Anytime a, a surgeon or a physician comes to us with a project, you know, we sit down and we say, what are your goals? You know, what do you need to do? And then what tools can we help you with in order to achieve those goals? And sometimes, a lot of times, right, it is a physical model because there is something really um, important about that kind of three-dimensional tactile feel, right? Yeah. So there's something about, you know, being able to hold a model that it's, it's the one-to-one -one dimension that you'll experience with your patient. And surgeons really are, right? They really do work in, in three-dimensional space. Whereas radiologists are masters of like, they, I, you know, radiologists are just masters of being able to translate what is two-dimensional into a three-dimensional understanding of pathology and human anatomy. Your, you know, your average person just simply doesn't do that that quickly. So, you know, for folks who are kind of three-dimensional thinkers, being able to have that tactile experience really does um, create a, a different, you know, level of understanding for somebody. Yeah. I mean, I've been practicing radiology for a dec almost a decade, more than a decade, probably, if you consider residency. Um, mm -hmm. And there is absolutely a disconnect between imaging and surgery. Um, and I still am unable to actually make that connection oftentimes. Um, you know, part of it is because Surgeons are the real people who actually go into the field and touch and cut and maneuver with in a pool of blood oftentimes. So, I mean, thinking back in the days where when we don't have 3D printing, it's kind of scary. Like no one is practicing really outside of the patient. Everybody was um, practicing on the patient basically first yeah. time. They open it up. It's like, whoa, what a surprise. Like, do you really want that? Yeah. And then, you know, I think there's there's a lot. In, in the research is, I'm happy to see the, the body of research growing, right? That shows the value of 3D models uh, in surgical planning. But I think another area which is often overlooked is in, in another kind of area and that is um, patient education, right? Which is like a term that you see used a lot now is an enhanced consent. Because if it's hard for us folks who are in healthcare and understand like human anatomy to, to look at a CAT scan, right, or look at an X-ray or look at an MRI and be like, and understand what I'm looking at, you know, to imagine that your average uh, person, patient, you know, when you're, when they're in their kind of pre-operative visit and they're, somebody's pointing at a screen of some, you know, blurry black and white objects that they they know what the heck you're pointing at uh, while they nod their head, yes, in agreement, right? Like having new tools, to enable that education to be more effective. Again, thinking about that human-centered approach, you know, if, if you were that patient sitting in that chair, you have no idea what's about to happen to you, um, you have a million questions but don't know how to begin to answer them, having a tool, right, like this, that, you know, looks, this that? looks like a big blob. But I, I kind of know what it is, but. So this is a liver, right? <laughs> this is a this is a scale liver model that we, uh, uh, we did a small study on looking at patients who are going to undergo partial liver resections with one of our uh, liver surgeons here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you and know, what is the one of the stuff and what is the uh, blue stuff and the, the red yeah, stuff? Yeah, totally. So, so here you have, right, you, your two major vessels. So you have your, 
your uh, vein artery, and then you can see kind of the red and blue are the major kind of vessels going through the liver, you know, just the major branches. And that little orange blob that's kind of floating in there is tumor, right? Yeah. And this particular tumor is sitting right on the end of a major kind of arterial vessel. You can kind of see it there. And again, what was fascinating about this, and here you get a really good, just this process, I remember talking to the surgeon, you know, this is a very experienced surgeon with a lot, a ton of experience doing this. And frequently we hear that, you know, we hear from very experienced uh, physicians that, you know, I've been doing this a long time, I know how to do it. Right. But right. then they get a new tool in their hand and they're like, oh, wait, this actually gives me new information that I didn't have before. So sometimes like even just being able to manipulate something and you can see like, Suddenly now from this angle, you see that there's a space there between that artery and that vein, where when you're looking at it like this, right, it was like right on top of each other. So yeah, and that artery is leading to that tumor. It is. Yep, certainly. So so not only was this valuable, though, for the the to help that surgeon practice and, and pre-plan, but we would show the patient, right? We would show the patient uh, this model beforehand. Uh, explain what the procedure was, you know, in resection cases, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, how much of the organ can be salvaged, it can be, can remain, right? And, and it's really reassuring to patients time and time again, we hear that it's not scary, right? More information is not scary. And this is, again, this is an assumption that people in healthcare have been making for a very long time. The idea that, you know, if you give your patient more information, it's a bad thing. Well, inevitably, you know, time and time again, we see with these types of models that it's not seen as a bad thing. More information is valuable. It enables somebody to understand the procedure, ask better questions, right? Be more confident with their decision making about the procedure that they're about to undergo. And it's amazing. It's actually really amazing to see how happy folks are when you go the extra mile, right? When you show them that we're really like using every tool at our disposal to make sure that, you know, their care goes as well as it, as it can be. As it can yeah, be. it definitely feels like extra step that you made for the patient. Um, I mean, a lot of times, like from me as a radiology, I, it's not like I don't want to share information. It's really, I don't know how to, um, mm. because mm -hmm. one sentence will lead to like a hundred other questions. Like I, I don't even know where to begin because we weren't really trained to communicate with patients as a radiology. Like we're trained to talk to doctors with like Latin. Um, so I think these kind of models definitely will really help bridge that gap of communication. Yeah. So we're approaching the end of our interview. I want to hear what is your short and long-term goals? What are some of the challenges you want to conquer? What, what is your vision? Like a, like a final statements kind of. Uh, yeah, I mean... You know, there's amazing work being done uh, all over the country, all over the world in this space. And there are some great organizations, right? Like groups like yours who are trying to bring people together, educate folks. Uh, groups like RSNA, right? The Radiological Society of North America, the 3D SIG group there is doing really important work from the, you know, academic side and making sure yeah. that we're creating support for these services to be available. Mm -hmm. But I think we really are still in the beginning stages where you just have a lot of people who are stranded on these islands who are trying to figure out either you started a small service and you're trying to figure out how to grow it, how to make it sustainable. Uh, you want to bring this into your practice, right? Whether you're coming from radiology or coming from surgery, there's a lot of opportunity in the therapies, right? And occupational and physical therapies for these types of tools to be utilized. 
And all these people are just basically trying to figure it out on their own. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, you know, again, like the, like the groups I mentioned to bring folks together, to provide tools to, uh, to, so that they can, you know, do this work quicker and better and not have to create everything from scratch and build upon that of others. But then also there needs to be some training. You know, one of the things that I'm, I, I feel really proud about our group is, is that, yes, we are providing a service at our organization, but we're also teaching a lot of folks, right? Every medical student who's coming through our program um, is learning about, you know, advanced imaging techniques and technologies. They're learning about 3D printing. They're learning about human-centered design to the point where we even have fellows now. So we're in our fourth year of our fellowship uh, medical students, usually they're interested in surgery or radiology, will take a whole year off to spend with us just to do mm -hmm. research in this arena. And it's, so it's really amazing that we're kind of creating these new experts, right? These physicians yeah. of the future who are going to go to wherever they go, having this knowledge and skill in their back pocket, right? So they can begin to grow this work elsewhere. Because I think that, that kind of building that ecosystem of education is also a really important uh, part of this. Is there any way that an outside non-medical student can access to these educational resources? Because, like, for example, people like me would love to see what you're teaching and learn. Yeah, you know, and we collaborate with a lot of other groups. Um, you know, there's a, I work with a local engineering program. They have a really great, you know, there's all these teachers are doing really amazing things. So I work with a, a, a local engineering program that is teaching segmentation to biomedical engineers. Right. And talking about 3D printing and healthcare, And then you have OT programs that are teaching it. And then you have medical programs that are teaching it, too. So, you know, we, we have a very open, you know, open policy. We're always willing to share kind of how we do things and, and our approaches. Uh, but at the end of the day, there does have to be investment. Right. There does need to be an investment on the part of um, the organization and, and the school to say, I want my students to be able to. Learn I see. This. Right. And 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 that's why, you know. We, we do a lot of work with the medical school because the medical school, uh, you know, a number of years ago decided that they wanted to invest in students who understood things like design and human centeredness. Right. And these programs were grown from that, that investment. So currently these right. are available for medical students who I'm assuming don't pay uh, to learn from you. Um, Correct. It's part of their it's part of their curriculum and part of their extracurricular kind of opportunity. But we also take a lot of interns, right? Like if it wasn't for COVID times, we used to take interns from schools all over the country. Um, we've had to scale a lot of that down uh, because of COVID and just the complexities around it. But, yeah. you know, I've got a, I've got four medical student interns and a couple, we've got a couple interns who are going to be working with us on bioprinting. We've got a bioprinting uh, space here in the lab as well. So, you know, those are always uh, places for folks who are really interested to learn. What is that? All right. <laughs> Bonus points, finale. Jenny. What? what do you think? This is the finale. Okay, you know what this is. If I hold it upside down, do you okay. understand? Do you know what it is better? Oh my god! Um, first of all, there is a lot of things blocking. Um, hmm, it's got to be some kind of tumor on top of. No, I, is that a brain? Is this that comes a off. Nope, oh. not a brain. It's very large, right? <laughs> what could be this big? Here's a cross section. Is this a uterus? No. Oh, you're close. Yep, that's it. You got it. It is a uterus. Can you can oh you name God. name that pathology? Previa. You got it. I think. I, well, uh, this is where I kind of my understanding falls apart. It's either percreta or uh, I think it's percreta. 
and placenta percreta. <laughs> I can't believe you guys printed out a giant uterus. I mean, that's like. I, I, so we I do a lot. Red, we, what's the red and the blue part? Is just veins and uh, placenta veins and artery? Like you got it. So you have um, placenta, okay. right? That's gone through the myometrium. This is uh -huh. a tremendous vascular bundle. Yeah. And this is actually a uh, bladder that's sitting kind of sandwiched right below that vascular bundle. Okay. So we've got um, a really fantastic high-risk obstetric service at one of our hospitals, at Abington Hospital. Yeah. And um, they came to us again. Like, we do these really great – this is kind of one of my funky, busted old models because the original model of this is literally in a museum now. Is that um, you got it. Yep. This is a leomyomatous uterus model. This is this patient was, I believe, about 30 weeks or 25 that, to 30 weeks. Is that one-to-one one one size? That's giant. Yeah, correct. It is one-to-one one size. That is crazy. Wow. Right. So you can see all the fibroids penetrating, you know, some, how, how they go through. Here's the placenta here. Yeah. And again, this, this really is used as a communication tool because... In these cases, they have like six, it was, it amazed me. They have like six different specialties in the room, right? You have vascular, urology, you know, the obstetric surgeons, you know, anesthesia, you name it. Like there's all these groups and they all have to plan these procedures from the day this, this, this woman is diagnosed, right? With a complex pregnancy, they start planning and they yeah. follow her throughout. So they need to be ready to go at a moment's notice. And they, they use this as their map. Right, their map to help guide them when they're discussing their planning, thinking about what their surgical approach is going to be, and getting everybody on the same page. Yeah, fascinating. It used to be a group mm -hmm. of people looking at X-rays, and now they're looking at the now they're looking at X-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, and 3D prints. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for your session today. I know you're extremely busy with your work and life, so thank you so much for spending time with me and everybody here. And I will catch up soon. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. There you go Thank out you. with a, a 3D printed brain. Okay. <laughs> Just play some music. <laughs> da, 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 da. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Um, and uh, we will process this to make it a podcast and on YouTube. So stay tuned. Okay. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 3 Heels, And check out the links in the show notes. See you next time.